Hello, and welcome to another episode of Military Transition Stories, the podcast where veterans share their experience and advice about transitioning from military to civilian life. I'm your host, Trey Tatro. I'm a realtor and military relocation professional here in Northern Virginia. To hear more episodes, visit militarytransitionstories.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast service. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Military Transition Stories. Today, we're talking with Chip Malon, Marine veteran and author of The New Ministry of Truth. Chip, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, Trey. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. Uh, so why don't you start us off? Tell us about when you uh, went into the service and uh, what it was that drew you to the Marines. Sure. So I actually began my service at the Naval Academy right after high school. And it wasn't positive what I wanted to do, but I knew since I was a little kid that I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. I think hearing stories about a great uncle who was a fighter who was killed in World War II, I think as a little kid just kind of put that idea in my head. But ironically, I got to the Naval Academy, not sure what I wanted to do after, but Marine. And then one thing led to another, and um, I met a fair amount of both upperclassmen who selected Marines and then Marine officers on campus who I tremendously respected and realized that, hey, I guess the Marines really good organization and, and the way to go for me. Gotcha. And uh, tell us, tell us a little bit about your uh, deployment because that's, that's actually going to wrap into the book. So actually first, why don't you go ahead and tell us, give us kind of an overview as to uh, what the book uh, that you re- recently wrote, The New Ministry of Truth. Tell us a little bit about what that's about. Sure thing. So the full title is The New Ministry of Truth, Combat Advisors in Afghanistan and America's Great Betrayal. And I realize it's a fairly loaded title, but that's the intent. Mm -hmm. Because the purpose of the book is to force a discussion about something that I think a lot of Americans have been able to ignore. And a lot of our elected officials have been able to kind of punt down the line and not really make the hard decisions and have the difficult conversations about. So taking a step back, the entire deployment. So it's a somewhat unique Marine Corps deployment called the Georgian Deployment Program, where a group of Marines goes over to the Republic of Georgia, spends a few months training soldiers in a battalion from the Republic of Georgia, and then deploys with those actual soldiers to Afghanistan as their embedded combat advisors. Mm -hmm. So all in, it's about 11 months. Three months over in Georgia, training with the Georgians and getting to know our counterparts. A month in Germany where we do a mission rehearsal exercise and get ready to go out the door. And then seven months working with them as combat advisors and essentially being their liaisons between the Georgian forces and their U.S. Army or U.S. Marine Corps higher headquarters, depending on where they're serving. And and so as somebody who uh, hasn't been in the military, what is the... Uh, that reverse mission uh, that you're talking about in Germany? What, what is that kind of thing? So the mission rehearsal exercise, think of it as um, just basically a rehearsal. So we spend a month where we're being both trained in the front end and then formally evaluated on the back end by both U.S. Army, U.S. Marine, and Republic of Georgia trainers and advisors. So it's one final chance to say, hey, here's some rudder steers to fix 
things you're doing, things you could do differently before you actually deploy to a combat zone. So it's, for lack of better terms, the dress rehearsal. Okay, I got gotcha. you. And uh, so let, let's go ahead and dive a little more into the book and, you know, what it is that, uh, you know, the heart of what you're really getting at here with it and what it was that gave you the, uh, the inspiration and the idea to write this. Sure. Well, it started as more self-help than anything else. During the seven months in Afghanistan, I became progressively angrier and angrier and more frustrated with each passing day. Broadly speaking, it boiled down to the fact that we've been fighting there for nearly two decades with no clearly defined political objective. And for the vague objectives that are floated, no clear connection between how our use of military force can accomplish any of those political objectives. And when you don't have that connection between some overarching political objective and military means that can accomplish that, you're sacrificing American service members needlessly. Mm -hmm. So I became more and more upset with that throughout the course of the deployment and beyond the broader geopolitical considerations. What's ultimately frustrating for the guys on the ground is that the way this failure to define a clear political objective that can be achieved by military means, how that's translated for us is we're restricted in our abilities to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. So not only are we sent overseas to a fight that has no clear connection between our use of force and overarching political objectives while there, our ability to defend ourselves is restricted. So just over the course of these seven months of dealing with this frustration and seeing our guys put at risk day in and day out for something that just couldn't be justified, like I said, I just got progressively more upset. And I actually initially turned to journaling more as catharsis than anything else, where just to avoid losing my mind, I just jot down some notes every day. But it, it was more an attempt to just compartmentalize and and dump my frustrations into a notebook and kind of set them aside to focus on the mission at hand. And then when I got home, I realized that I hadn't fully dumped all those emotions out. There was still a lot of anger about the whole situation over there and the experiences we had. And that's when I pulled that journal back out. And over the course of really four years from when I returned, and uh, I guess that was April 2015, I just wrote a little bit every day, not really anticipating it would ever actually be a published work, mm -hmm. but just for more therapy and catharsis of the actual act of pouring emotions out onto paper. Did you find that, um, I mean, obviously it didn't fully help it because like you said, once you got back, you realized that it still hadn't you know, fully gotten rid of all of that uh, anger and frustration that came along with it. But you were doing this as a way to, you know, sort of help clear that and uh, to kind of help, I, I guess you could say, you know, come to, to come to peace or come to terms with it. Did it, did it help with that? Or do you still feel like it didn't accomplish what you had set out with it? Yeah. I, I don't see it as a binary thing. It's not, it helped 100% or it didn't help at all. Mm -hmm it has been a transition process and I'm better now for having written than I was before. 
So how did you find out that uh, writing, whether it be in a, in a longer format or even just doing some journaling uh, daily, how, how did you discover that that was the tool and that was the resource that could, uh, you know, help you uh, with this? Years before I even had any idea I'd be ever in a combat zone, I started journaling while I was traveling and did a fair amount of travel on my own. And it's a good way to, while you're traveling in another country solo, to just reflect on the situation and put memories to paper. So I'd been in the habit of traveling and writing. So it was a natural progression to apply that habit to dealing with stress in a different form of travel, given being in Afghanistan certainly isn't the same as backpacking around on your own, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you're, you're, you're in a new place overseas and you need to deal with certain things one way or another. And for me, I'd had the habit built of writing. So it was just a natural progression to sure. tackle stress and frustration with writing as well. Sure. And, and you mentioned, you know, getting in the habit of it and that that's great. I'm actually in the middle of a couple of different, uh, audibles and audiobooks for myself uh, regarding just, you know, habits and setting those and, uh, uh, you know, cutting the, the bad habits. So for somebody who maybe hasn't uh, done something like journaling or writing before, or even something else that is sort of that release for them, and they're still kind of discovering it, what are some tips that you could give to somebody for getting that habit started and kind of getting in the routine of doing so. So the, my answer is kind of going to be in your question. So I apologize for that, but the ultimate piece of advice I receive from a family member who's actually been a prolific writer for years is establishing a routine and sticking with it. <laughs> and I know that that seems I'm kind of dodging the question, but the first week is the most difficult. Yeah. For me, I personally set, the routine of every day before work, I was going to write for one hour. Now, sometime that hour of writing was me staring at a blank word document. And sometimes it was writing two or three pages. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was somewhere in between. But what was always difficult over the course of three, four years of writing this book was something would happen. I'd go out of town and I'd derail that routine. And it was always so difficult getting back into it. Right. But once you spend that first week or every morning or every evening, whatever you set as your routine, stick to it religiously because it's very difficult to overcome the inertia of stopping something and then trying to restart it. Whether it's going to the gym or writing, it's so much easier once you tackle that first week of the routine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, it's important to, stick with it even if you don't feel like you're actually making any progress with it like if it's one of those days where you're just staring at a blank word document still sitting there and being in the habit of staring at that blank word document is still better than just closing the laptop and saying never mind i'll come back to this tomorrow uh, yeah the the one of the books i'm reading right now they they actually used an example uh comparing it to going to the gym and it was basically saying that if you uh, want to get in the habit of going to the gym and you're just really resistant to the idea of even going and starting your workout, then go to the gym and just be there for like five minutes 
and then leave because eventually you're going to get to the point where you're like, you know what? I'm already here. I might as well <laughs> yeah, do that's something. the toughest part. <laughs> it's just showing up. So what is something that or what would be the biggest takeaway that you would hope for someone to get from uh, reading your book? The biggest takeaway is that we have to have more public conversations about our use of military force. It's easy to ignore it, especially with the all volunteer force. We can kind of put it on the back burner and pretend it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I personally think a lot of our elected officials have punted on their responsibilities to have an honest and forthright discussion about our use of military force. And specifically what that means to me is asking clearly before we commit to military force, what are the overarching political objectives we seek to achieve and can our use of military force accomplish those objectives? If not, how do you look parents in the eyes, somebody who's lost a child and say, oh, it's okay. We're kind of muddling about over there. We just as a society need to have a more honest discussion about whether our military activities are achieving some greater political objective or if they're just at this point in time, a self-licking ice cream cone of <laughs> we're going to keep doing it because we've been doing it. Right. And a, a big pet peeve of mine is when people throw around the term patriotism as in you have to support any use of U.S. military force if you're a patriot. To me, it's the complete opposite. When you look at the human toll that our last two decades of war have caused, mm -hmm. patriotism isn't blindly supporting U.S. military force. It's having the courage to say, before we commit our young men and women to fight and potentially die overseas, Let's have an honest and frank discussion of why are we sending them overseas? What's the greater purpose, the greater objective? And can this use military force actually accomplish that? Right. Short of that discussion, we are betraying every single American we send overseas. So asking this question, knowing probably what the answer is already and the fact that it, it is kind of a little bit of a loaded question, but based on how everything is in, in today with, uh, with our politics and the military and everything, and regardless of, uh, you know, which side you're on and, and all of that, because like you said, this is something that, and as we all know, this is something that extends back decades. Do you, do you think that at this point with the narrative, the way that it is, that there's really any way that, anybody on either side can quote unquote win in terms of either side of the political aisle uh it, well in terms of uh when it comes to the military and uh the wars that were deployed in well that's the problem is we haven't had somebody define and i'll speak in a limited sense in afghanistan here i'm not speaking about our use of force writ large but Sure. We'll at least narrow it down to Afghanistan. And sure. it's an interesting question about winning. What is winning? How can you define winning when we haven't established an objective? Right. What 
over the course of our two decades and change, or a little less in Afghanistan, we've had three different administrations talk about dozens of different political objectives. But really, they're just kind of the flavor of the week. Right. We haven't had a single overarching objective driving our military force in that country. Now, what I'd say is right now with the less than 10,000 and change troops that we have, if our political objective is the pipe dream of creating a stable democratic Afghanistan, a country that's never truly been a nation state, if we couldn't do it with over a hundred thousand people, how are we going to do it with less than 10,000 people? Right. And that's the disconnect right there is what is winning and what kills me. And it's not a matter of naming names, but when you have four star generals saying, Hey, sometimes we just have to keep muddling around in this country. How do you look parents in the eyes and say that it's okay, your son, your daughter died, but they were muddling around for us. So long way of saying, no, I don't think we can win because I don't think we can define winning because we have no overarching objective that can be achieved by military force. Yeah. And I guess, uh, an analogy just to put to it um, would be that basically it's the equivalent of saying, you know, this year our company is is going to increase sales as opposed to saying we're going to, you know, increase sales by X percentage or hit this dollar amount. It's just, it's a loose and it sounds good on paper, but doesn't really mean a whole lot type of goal setting. Sure. I, I'll, I'll accept the analogy. That's, that's certainly apt. And another good quote, and this certainly isn't my own. Uh, and unfortunately I can't remember to whom I need to attribute it, but somebody said, Hey, we haven't been in Afghanistan for 18 years. We've been in Afghanistan for one year, 18 times. <laughs> There's just no continuity, no overarching objective driving our actions there. And somehow we expect some something different to happen. And I won't quote the definition of insanity, but I think everyone knows <laughs> yep. to what I'm referring. Yep. And, and that's a great quote about the one year, 18 times. And uh, speaking of quotes, actually, if it's OK, I'd like to I'd like to read a little uh, portion from your book before we uh, start talking about your transition, because this uh, I think that this quote does a nice job of reflecting on what is one of the points of this podcast, which is that, um, again, I've said it on here before and I'll continue to say it on here is that I don't have uh, military experience myself. Several uh, family members do, but personally I don't. And part of the hope with this is to be able to bridge some of that gap between uh, military life and the transition into uh, civilian life and workforce. And uh, you have a quote in the book that actually it's about a paragraph. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read that real quick. Please do. All right. So you said, if you've never served in the military, popular culture makes it seem as if the Marine Corps and every other service runs on motivational speeches, epic assaults, and hell or high water last stands. In reality, the Department of Defense runs on emails and PowerPoint slides. Fittingly, the power on our portion of the base happened to be out the afternoon I returned, grinding all staff work to a halt and no one could access email 
uh, or sorry, as no one could access their email accounts. And I just wanted to, you know, that one really stuck out because it really kind of helps draw the comparison that you might think that there's a big difference, but for the majority of people, being in the military is probably pretty similar to a lot of the uh, civilian workforce jobs that they could be transitioning to afterwards. Sure, there's a ton of overlap. And I'll say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely. The, the U.S. military has a promotional machine that's comparable to a totalitarian regime in terms of the pro- propaganda we push out about our own selves. I mean, prime example, growing up, looking at TV commercials, I still haven't gotten a chance to wield a sword and slay a fire-breathing dragon. <laughs> but yeah, the Marine Corps certainly told me I would. Right. So once again, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but the, the big takeaway is that while I absolutely am not diminishing the incredible performance and experiences and combat that so many U.S. service members have had over the past two decades and really the history of the United States, that's only a small portion of what happens. Right. To your point from that quote, yeah, we need PowerPoint slides. We need to go to meetings that we're frustrated about of why are we having this meeting? When email goes down, just like in an office, it's, hey, what are we going to do now? So, yeah, it's certainly a different environment. And I would argue that there are significantly higher stakes. Of course. But in terms of the day-to-day actions, especially stateside, very comparable. So let's talk some about your uh, transition. Um, tell us, how did it go? Uh, you know, what resources did you kind of turn to for it? And what did you find that helped you have a successful transition? Absolutely. In undergrad, I studied political science, went to grad school and studied terrorism. So that was a path that certainly set me on my course in the Marine Corps of defense-specific studies. After nine years of service, I knew I wanted to get out and go a completely different path. I was ready to remove myself from the Department of Defense, from the industries related to it, and just wanted to try something new. For me, I thought I'd give my hand, give it a a shot at uh, accounting. It seemed like a pretty clear-cut way of this is a hard skill. If I learn it, I can apply and get a job. So over my past couple of years, excuse me, last couple of years in the service, I went back to school part time and got a bachelor's degree in accounting. And what that did is when I got out of the service, I was applying for entry level recent college graduate jobs as an accountant because I wanted to use my military experience as an asset, not a liability. I didn't want to go in... Apologize, too. That was a little accounting pun. I didn't even mean to throw that in there. (laughs) But what I didn't want to do is come out as a 31-year-old of the military and try convincing somebody that, hey, you should hire me over this person who spent the last 10 years in the business world because I haven't spent the last 10 years in the business world. I've learned a lot of very valuable skills in the military, but 
I wanted those valuable skills to separate me from candidates, not be something pulling me back. Right. And I knew that coming out and applying for accounting positions, when I was compared to a college graduate, it's, hey, we have two recent college graduates, although one has 10 years of military experience. And then I'm separating myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to put myself in the position where it was, hey, we have 10 or excuse me, two people in their early 30s, one of whom has 10 years of business experience. The other has no business experience, but the soft skills the military has provided. In the situation where you're applying for a job right out of college instead of that mid-management position, mm-hmm. your military experience is an absolute asset. So how did you frame your military experience whenever you were uh, going through these, uh, the job applications and everything to, as, as a way for it to help you uh, stand out as opposed to just kind of fall into the background? Sure. I translated a lot of the experience that everyone in the military has into things that are universally positive attributes. So a couple that jump out, problem solving. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you can solve problems, you're going to be an awesome resource for an organization. So I emphasize problem solving. Another thing was organization. For better or worse, you need to be organized in the military when you're leading troops. Otherwise, their training, their performance is going to suffer because of your lack of organization. Mm -hmm. So translating that organization in the military environment into how you can remain organized in a business environment is absolutely critical as well. Because if you're a problem solver who can, with good organization, hit deadlines and make sure you're not letting anything slide, then you're gonna be an absolute resource. So really organization, problem solving, and then just general ability to handle things without stress. So at the end of the day, it's easy to just take a deep breath now and not get stressed out. Nobody's shooting at us sitting inside, have a bottomless cup of coffee. It's not (laughs) raining on me. All in all, things are pretty good. Right. So when things get hectic in an office environment, that's another valuable resource that somebody who's been in the stress of a military world can bring of, hey, let's all just take a deep breath. We're going to get this figured out. So those three things, really, problem solving, organization, and the ability to effectively handle stress or stress are really skills that any veteran can apply to his or her resume and cover letter as they're moving out into the business world. Right. Or the, uh, I say business world, civilian world writ large, whatever it is you decide to pursue. Sure. Absolutely. And uh, you said that you were, that you went back and you did your bachelor's while you were still in the service. So tell us a little bit about that and how you went about that, both in terms of time management, but also, uh, when we talked briefly before this, you said that you did utilize, uh, you know, benefits such as the GI Bill. So tell us both how you uh, took on the time management side of uh, working on your education while still being in the service, as well as going about using your benefits to actually maximize uh, and get the true value out of them. Sure. I'll start with the benefits because it's something I'm particularly passionate about and it frustrates me to no end when veterans leave their GI Bill benefits on the table because it is an absolutely incredible resource that 
it's just a complete and utter waste to not take advantage of it. So what the GI Bill gives you is 36 months of education benefits. And if you're out of the service during that 36 months, you also getting a housing allowance while you're enrolled full-time in classes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an incredible opportunity to use 36 months to figure out what is next for you and set yourself up in that path where you don't have to go into crippling student debt and you're getting somebody paying for you to rent an apartment or pay your mortgage or whatever it is you're doing with that housing allowance. So yes, I, I used a portion of my GI Bill to take this accounting degree. So that's the benefit side. In terms of the time management, it kind of comes back to the writing routine where it was always challenging when something disrupted the routine, whether it was vacation or I was overseas for some sort of training event that kind of threw a wrench into my, my study routine. Because once you establish that routine, whether it's I'm going to spend two hours every night after work or four hours Sunday morning, four hours Saturday morning, whatever that routine is, you need to religiously stick to it. It's not easy especially when you're in the service balancing that. But once you spend that first couple of weeks getting into routine and you see the clear benefits of it, then it's going to become a lot easier. At least you're seeing some end in sight, but it comes down to the routine as well. It shouldn't be an ad hoc process of, Oh, I guess today I'll do this. Then tomorrow I'll figure something out. It's this is my weekly routine. Uh, and for me, what I do is, Every Monday, I'd look at the next week because the course I was in, it, it happened to break down the modules by week. Okay. So Monday morning, I just outline my work for the week and kind of assign it to certain time slots that I'd worked into my routine and then just work through it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. That's, that's something I do for myself. I have a planner that it doesn't have quite every hour on the day, but it has most waking hours on there. Uh, and so I use that to basically just outline, you know, either every half hour as much as I can or every hour as much as I can. That way I, it's already kind of set what's going to be done. And like you said, there isn't any of that sitting there thinking, okay, you know, what am I going to do next or what am I going to do today? Sure. So I didn't ask this earlier and I should have asked this earlier, but where can we pick up a copy of your book? <laughs> ah, Awesome. So right now it's available for pre-order at hellgatepress.com. Okay. So Hellgate's our publisher and on 16 May, it'll actually be released. So after that, that's when you'll be able to get it on Amazon. You'll be able to get it in brick and mortar stores, but it's available for pre-order right now at hellgatepress.com. Search Hellgate New Ministry of Truth or Hellgate Chip Nalon and it'll pop up. And then after the 16th of May, yeah, it'll be available for, uh, for order on Amazon and shortly thereafter in brick and mortar bookstores or bookstores, excuse me. Awesome. Well, Chip, I, I appreciate all the information and all the tips that you've given us so far. Um, I, I like to wind down e each episode with the same question, which is how do you personally define success? It's an awesome question. And Personally, it's kind of a combination of two things. The first is living for some greater purpose. So what beyond ourselves are we actually pursuing? What are we working towards beyond just ourselves? 
So that's part of it, living and working towards some greater purpose, whatever that purpose is. And it doesn't have to be military service. It doesn't have to be government service. You don't have to work at a charity, just something outside of yourself that you're working towards. Right. So that's one element of success. And the other, it's less a element of success and more an indicator of it. And I would say just being happy with who we are. To me, the most admirable people are the ones who can look in the mirror and say, I am legitimately happy with who I am. I'm not comparing myself to somebody else. I'm not wishing I could do this, but just I am happy with who I am. To me, that is an outstanding indicator of success. So really those two things, working for some greater cause and then just being comfortable in your own skin and, and happy with who you are. Uh, I think you pretty much nailed it there. I mean, if you've got both of those things, then, you know, what else could you really want? Yeah, now I just have to figure out how to do them. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and take a little thing from uh, Marvel over the last 10 years. And let, let's go ahead and look forward a little bit before before we officially wrap this up. Should we expect a second book at some point? So for me, I don't consider myself an author per se, where I'm coming up with ideas to write. This book was a product of my experience. If moving forward, I have similar experiences, I guess it wouldn't be similar experiences, but some sort of similar emotion caused by some experience, then yeah, potentially. I, I love writing um, and I'll always write in some way, shape or form, whether that's another book or just journaling or blogging. We'll see. But either way, it's, um, I'm, I'm happy to have this first one under my belt. And if there's another one down the line, I certainly would be opposed to it. Well, May 16th, it'll be available. But in the meantime, give us the website one more time for the pre-orders. Sure. It's hellgatepress.com. H-E-L-L-G-A-T-E press.com. All right. And again, that's the new Ministry of Truth, Combat Advisors in Afghanistan and America's Great Betrayal. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast service, and be sure to check out all of our other episodes at militarytransitionstories.com. I'm your host, Trey Tatro, and if you or someone you know are moving in the Northern Virginia area, I'd be happy to help you find your new home. If you live in another part of the country but need the assistance of a professional realtor, I'd be happy to connect you with someone from my extensive network of military relocation certified realtors. Thanks for listening.